This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. I am honored to be joined by Dr. Lori Brado, who has written a great book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. If you want to win a copy of this book, we'll have the third caller at 604-280-9898 or 1-877-399-9898. Also in this hour, we're going to be talking to Dr. John Weisler about heart health and energy drinks, and um, also going to be talking about whether you should put a lid on your past emotional hurts. And uh, are women stronger on some level than men, especially when it comes to running races? Well, this girl wasn't any stronger. She couldn't even make it to the sun run today because she was too ill. But apparently some of the women in the Boston Marathon really, um, really showed uh, courage and stamina, more so than men. I'm going to be reviewing that a little bit later on in the program. But for now, we're continuing our discussion with Dr. Lori Brado, a sex researcher right here in Vancouver. She's done amazing work, and she's done a tremendous amount of work for women to raise awareness about sexual desire, the sexual response cycle. Uh, her book is rooted in stories, but also reviews the research that she has done in her own lab here in Vancouver, and also what you can do about your low sexual desire. Dr. Brado, thanks so much for staying in the studio with me. My pleasure, Maureen. Thank you. We are uh, talking about your book, which was just fascinating. I loved it. I never read books twice, and I will be reading this book twice. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your research that you have done and what has some uh, what has that research revealed about the women who have presented to your clinic with low sexual desire and uh, and in terms of mindfulness. Right. So um, there's been a lot of interest over the years in what are the causes for low desire. And and, um, a lot of that research has really looked at the hormonal causes or the physical or physiological causes. And yes, we know hormones can play a role. Medications can. um, Certainly surgeries, chronic health conditions absolutely can. But what the research tells us is that much more important than those factors um, are the psychological factors. So issues such as chronic stress, anxiety, uh, low self-judgment or sense of self-worth, feelings of depression, feeling worn out, feeling fatigue, those psychological factors can predict low sexual desire much more so than any of those physical factors. One of the things we know about stress is that it's not necessarily a traumatic, stressful event, say in the case of PTSD, but rather it's the daily grind that a lot of people find themselves in. Um, so the the kind of the never-ending to-do list, the constantly having to be at a different place at a different time, being accessible at all times, of the day with the uh, advent of our our smartphones and other means of being so accessible. And what happens is it does result in chronic levels of stress that affect our body, that affect our brain, that affect our mood, and certainly affect our sexual health. So about 15 years ago, uh, when I was living in Seattle and working at the University of, of Washington, Um, and learning about mindfulness meditation techniques for other populations of patients, I had the idea of um, trying this method among women who were experiencing sexual difficulties. And at the time, it was women who were having sexual dysfunction as a result of their cancer treatment, so their gynecologic cancer treatment. So uh, pulled together the basics of an intervention that involved essentially bringing women into my office one by one, teaching them skills in how to pay attention 
non-judgmentally and in the moment. So I would guide them through a series of meditations. And after doing this with about 30 women, I was uh, pretty struck by the findings. And essentially, the findings indicated that there was some benefit to this method of of paying attention non-judgmentally. So from there, fast forward about 15 years, we've now expanded the intervention to groups of women. We typically have about eight women per group. Um, The intervention is eight weeks, so eight weekly sessions. Each session is about two hours. And we've now followed women for at least a year after the end of treatment um, and essentially are finding the same findings over and over and over again, which is that women report an improvement in desire, an improvement in sexual satisfaction, improvements in mood and well-being, and their levels of distress, most importantly, um, drop very, very significantly. And, and overall, they just feel better. They feel more present in their sex lives and more present in their life more generally. And so this is uh, knowledge that they're gaining from your uh, clinic, from your group therapies, and that they are then translating that back to the bedroom uh, with their partners. And, and is this with uh, same-sex couples as well as heterosexual couples. Do we see any difference there? Yeah, we see no difference. And and over the years, we've um, looked at that question specifically. So do lesbian women show different responses from bisexual women, from straight women? No difference whatsoever. So the degree of improvement that we see is the same. We've also looked at the influence of age. So is it the case that, say, younger women might benefit more from older women? Nope, no difference whatsoever. Um, same with menopausal status, the pre and post menopausal women benefited to the same degree. So what we conclude from those findings is that this is a very generalizable skill that we can take to broad groups of women who are distressed and seeking treatment for low desire. And these are women who want to engage in sex with their partners. They they feel badly about it. How much does the busyness of life, you know, we have a chronic over busyness epidemic occurring in North America between uh, becoming the perfect parent and having access to the iPhone, feeling the need to email everybody immediately to having the perfect children and make it look as though the marriage is absolutely perfect. But by the end of the day, people are exhausted, flop into bed. Last thing a woman wants to do when she's tired and stressed is to have sex. Yeah. And, and, you know, mindfulness meditation isn't going to fix any of those things. It's not going to make uh, an utterly fatigued woman suddenly feel like she's revitalized. It's not going to do that. It's not a Band-Aid technique. And we do know there's a Stress in America survey that's done every year. Um, and we face epidemic levels of stress. And again, it's the daily stress. It's the grind, the to-do list. And so mindfulness, what it does Um, is it teaches women, it gives them a skill for what they can do while they're being sexually active so that they're really there, so that they have a way when their mind takes off to different place, whether it's planning the next day or worrying about their performance or thinking that their partner is going to leave them. It's a way of, first of all, catching the attention when it takes off and then redirecting it back to the here and now. And so the skills that we teach women in the group and then ask them to practice at home every day are really about doing that. It's not that we can empty our mind of thoughts. That's not what this is about, nor that we necessarily change the content of our thoughts. It's not about putting rose-colored glasses on, but it's becoming much more deliberate about how we pay attention and how we bring our full self into the present moment. And I thought it was fascinating that um, for women who had had a history of sexual abuse or sexual trauma, mindfulness 
has, has shown benefit for them as well. There's nothing available for those women, and mindfulness is like a great big open heart for them. Yeah, these this the, these are really um, quite unfortunate cases of, of women. First of all, we know that rates of sexual abuse and childhood sexual abuse specifically are um, an abhorrently high. One in three women have had a history of abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet w- many of those women um, move on. They ha- they're resilient. They find themselves in happy and consensual relationships. They want to be having sex. And lo and behold, some of them will start to have flashbacks and traumatic memories during the current consensual sex that they're having. And so we've um, tested mindfulness against another treatment and indeed found that mindfulness uh, was a way of pulling them out of a dissociation, out of a flashback, and fully into the present moment. And it was a very, very powerful demonstration of that. It certainly is because uh, a lot of women experience anxiety, OCD, um, issues with their intimate lives, um, as a result of having been uh, abused sexually as a child. And as you say, it is far too common. In, in a 2008 North American study, depression was found to double the odds of a person having distressing low sexual desire. So how much does that uh, play a role in low sexual desire? And can mindfulness help with that as well, especially for the woman who is on an antidepressant, which commonly has sexual low sexual desire as one of the side effects? Yeah, absolutely. So we know when, when we when we think about what depression really is, it's kind of global apathy, right? It's lack of interest in anything, the things that used to you used to look forward to and find excitement in. And sex is one of them. And so loss of desire in sex can certainly be a symptom of depression. And on the other hand, women who have low sexual desire, um, if they experience low desire over time, they also can start to become depressed. So mindfulness has been used as a treatment for preventing depression relapse for quite some time, much, much longer than we've been using mindfulness for sex. So it makes a lot of sense then that mindfulness might have this two-pronged approach. In addition to improving sexual desire, it can also keep depressive symptoms at bay. And so we certainly found that in our research. And so is it uh, advisable for women with depression to perhaps um, be mindful, practice meditation? and meditative techniques, uh, mindfulness in the morning, and then uh, during intimate moments. Yeah, so uh, certainly it, it becomes really important to do this under the care of a skilled provider because we want to make sure that we're practicing mindfulness in the way that it is intended. Um, and it's essentially what you've described. So we talk about the, quote, on the pillow practice. And what that means is having the formal practice. For many people, this is first thing in the morning, although not necessarily. I do mine in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that good foundation of practice, they're then able to use mindfulness when they really need it. So this includes in the middle of a of a um, an anxiety-filled business meeting or when they're rushing to get to work or indeed during sexual activity. But having that foundational practice where they're practicing on their own is really first and foremost the most important part. And, and what exactly uh, is the mindfulness that you teach for intimate times or during sex? 
Um, so we, uh, there's a few different ways that we do this. So um, we might use a body scan in the same way that we teach women the body scan to scan their own sensations in the body when they're totally on their own. So we would encourage them during sexual activity to really pay attention and move their mind to different parts of their body, paying attention to what those sensations feel like and can they put words to it. So what are the sensations of vibration or heat or pressure or smoothness? or coolness, and they can start to scan different parts of their body, paying exquisite detail to what those sensations feel like. It's excellent work. Um, the uh, What would you, for a woman who's experiencing low sexual desire, of course, I would recommend that, that she read your book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. What would you recommend? Uh, what would be the first step that, for a woman to take to change her sex life? So my advice is really simple, and that is start now. So for anyone who's listening to this interview right now, you can actually listen mindfully. You can pay attention to how you're sitting. You can pay attention to your posture, any feelings in your body. Pay attention to when your mind takes off. So we don't have to be an expert meditator with hours and hours and hours on the pillow to be mindful. We can start to do this in all of the interactions within our day. Fantastic. And where can people get the book? It's available. Available on Tuesday through Greystone Publishing. You can buy it on Amazon or Indigo. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Brado. Always a pleasure to have you in the studio. We'll have you back because this is such a, an important and detailed subject. Remember, ladies, sex is for you. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Many of you may or may not realize that I'm also a nurse continence advisor. That means I deal with uh, leaky bladders, uh, and leaking urine is never normal. So I, the reason I, well, I got into it kind of, or kind of got into this whole sex thing and sex and bladders, and I was doing some work on one side of the, of the pond, the Burrard Inlet, around bladder health, and I was also doing some work on the other side of the pond, uh, the Burrard Inlet, our, our little pond here at the BC Center for Sexual Medicine, where I was seeing patients with low sexual desire and premature ejaculation and erection function issues as it related to depression. And then on the other side of the of the pond, uh, I was seeing patients who uh, had ur- urgency, frequency, nocturia, um, getting up at night to void more than once. And uh, and so I realized all of my little leaky bladder patients had sexual health problems and all of my sex pro- patients had bladder problems. Well, not all of them, but it was common. They were common issues. And, you know, leaking urine is not the sexiest subject, of course, but it's an important subject. And that can lead to low sexual desire because... Who wants to go out on with a new guy and they're leaking urine? Or many women experience leakage of urine at orgasm. They all often confuse it with female ejaculation, but the two are very different. And um, so it made me realize that I need to focus a little bit more on some of this leaky bladder stuff and how, because I educate so many people about it and see many patients in my clinical practice who experience frequency urgency and getting up at night to void and frequency and urgency with or without leakage of urine and also leaking leaking urine with cough and sneeze and exercise or going from lying to a standing position. There are a number of treatments for uh, bladder leakage and people don't realize that either and they don't go to their doctors because they don't think that there are treatments for it. But one thing you can start with is to do a bladder diary. So for 48 hours, you want to basically just 
Uh, write down when you void, why you, if you leaked, why you leaked, and um, you know, and how much you drank and what you drank. And so that is actually has a, that has a thirty percent placebo effect. And so just looking at it will help you to, uh, you know, will help you to get things to improve down there. So um, I wanted to say that uh, the average bladder can carry approximately 400 to 600 cc's and the it's normal to void about every three to four hours or every six to eight t- or six to eight times in a 24 hour period. So that's kind of the norm. But I also wanted to mention bladder irritants, common bladder irritants, which you may or may not be aware of. Unfortunately, the very first one is alcoholic beverages. There's also apples and apple juice, cantaloupe, carbonated beverages, chili and spicy foods, chocolate, citrus fruit, coffee, cranberries, grapes, guava, milk products, um, like cheese, cottage cheese, yogurt, ice cream, peaches, pineapple, plums, strawberries, sugar, especially artificial sweeteners, saccharin, aspartame, corn sweeteners, tea, tomatoes and tomato juice, vitamin B complex, and vinegar. Most people are not sensitive to all of these products, but your goal is to find the foods that make your symptoms worse. So just keep in mind, it's also good to drink enough water-based fluids 90% of the time so that your urine is clear and no alcohol is not a water-based fluid nor is tea, nor is coffee, but you can have one cup of coffee a day. And you also want to drink enough fluids. Uh, You want to... as I said, drink enough fluids so your urine is clear 90% of the time, but also drink your fluids between the time you get up and about 7 p.m., especially if you're getting up at night to pee. And one other trick of mine is to sit with your feet elevated above the level of your heart for 30 minutes prior to going to bed, about an hour before you're going to bed or, or two. And that way you'll void, you'll urinate more before you go to bed and be less likely to get up at night. That promotes venous return to your heart, helps your... Uh, the urine uh, to go from your kidney into your bladder, and then you will void. So those are my tips for bladder health. There's also pessaries or treatment, and also the Pacey cuff is a urethral device for men. It's a penis device, actually, uh, that compresses the urethra. Um, that's for men. So there's lots of treatments available, and you can always email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the final strokes of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath. Still alive, <laughs> hosting this program for you. I'm not that bad, actually. Uh, how do I sound? <laughs> I am just not a person who actually enjoys being sick in any way. I, I actually love life. I engage in every single aspect life has to offer, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And um, and so I'm not the best patient. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I, do, I like to feel well. Uh, I guess healthcare does have a tendency to attract that uh, type of person, the, the, those who are driven, mildly perfectionistic. I don't really think I'm that. I admit to a little OCD, uh, self-reliant, and perhaps a little proud. Perhaps that describes me. Um, but you know what? On with the show. Uh, fortunately, you've heard his voice before, and uh, hopefully you'll hear his voice many more times henceforth. Dr. John Weisler, cardiologist, colleague, and friend of mine, is going to talk to us about uh, something that you might not think is may injure or harm the children, the children on our soccer fields, the children on our... Um, oh, the children on our soccer fields... The children that you're driving home from field hockey, perhaps, um, the, the children on the way who maybe didn't get enough sleep the night before, 
Um, and so you might think that it's okay that they drink all of these Gatorade drinks, um, that, uh, that they drink all of um, these energy-type drinks, and you may think that those are just harmless drinks. And, of course, we want to give our children everything, right? We never want to say no to them. And, uh, and so we even feel that um, getting, these, um, uh, getting these drinks um, can be uh, beneficial for our children because we don't want to harm them. Um, <laughs> but um, you might just be harming them. But I'm going to get to that story in a little bit because, um, first of all, I think as you're driving those children on the way to those hockey games and to the field hockey games and to the um, to the soccer pitch and all of that, there's something that you can teach them about life, about life in general, and something that will hold them in good steed and something that you, in this busy and, and rushed world in which we live, you might actually forget. Maybe you're late. Maybe you stayed out a little bit late last night at the party. Maybe you went to bed too late, stayed up watching Netflix. Um, perhaps uh, you have burned the candle at both ends for the week. Um, perhaps you've just not been taking care of yourself. Perhaps you're not being as good of a parent as you would like to be. So what is, what are, what is that three letter word? We hear a lot of we hear a lot of four-letter words uh, in the car, perhaps. We're teaching our children that. Um, but maybe you don't necessarily hear this three-letter word. You're probably wondering, what the heck is the three-letter word that she is talking about? Well, the three-letter word begins with an A. <laughs> um, and it's something we, you know what, in this really crazy world in which we live we don't take time to smell the roses. That's not the word I'm talking about, of course. But you know what? You know, I remember when my mother was such a nature lover, she would take us for rides, you know, just drives around the neighborhood. And the, you know, um, she would have us, you know, looking at certain trees and looking at the ocean and looking at certain flowers and, you know, I, I have never forgotten that appreciation. And my mother was ahead of her time in so many ways. And she was a, she's a very, very happy person and just communed with nature. And, you know, when you encounter something so vast, so beautiful, so intense, that you have difficulty comprehending it, it's, it's, there's a word for that. And the word that I want to give you is... The word awe, something that you are in awe of is an experience. Multiple studies have concluded that it is very good for your health. And psychologists describe awe as those feelings that we get when we're touched by the beauty of nature, art, music, something I, I get really 
I am really in awe of is music or thinking about inspiring people or having a breakthrough that is so indescribable. Some people might say they are in awe if they're in awe of the intimate moments that they have with a person. Some people may have such an experience, such an incredible orgasm that they are in awe of that and they may experience tears after that. But researchers say we need to experience more awe in life because it boosts happiness and eliminates things like depression and other autoimmune diseases. Perhaps, perhaps I need to be in a little bit more awe of my own life and maybe that's the key to battling my cold. When I come back, we're going to be talking about those energy drinks and those other electrolyte replenishment drinks that you offer your children instead of offering them the awe on the ride to or from the soccer pitch. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Uh, I have Dr. John Weisler on the line. We're going to be talking about those energy drinks uh, that you feed your children. Hello, Dr. Weisler. Hello, Maureen. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Oh, great. Thanks for coming on the air. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, this is a really interesting and timely topic. You know, energy drinks are really popular, uh, young and old alike these days. They sure are. And you can see just a boatload of uh, parents and kids pulling up to the soccer pitch, and they're all drinking the energy drinks, maybe because the parents have a hangover, and then maybe the kids uh, feel that that's going to help them on the field outperform their their teammates. And, And then after the... Afterwards, you know, there's nothing else in the car to offer, so why not give an energy drink? It's healthy. What do you think of this for uh, our children? Well, um, it's maybe not the the best choice. I I remember one of the articles I was reading uh, was from a cardiologist who played football when when they were younger, as I did. And, you know, they remembered that, um, you know, at halftime on the football, on on the bench, you know, uh, on the team, they'd, they'd all share oranges, oranges and water. And that's what we used to have when we were playing. And now it seems to be you know, energy drinks, and there's stories of coaches, you know, well-meaning, I'm sure, buying, you know, a six-pack or a 12-pack for their team to split up and, and drink at uh, at halftime. And there's concern about the safety of these drinks, uh, particularly in the young. And so, um, you know, th- this is, th- there's an article that uh, that came out in the Canadian Journal of Cardiology recently, which um, I'll put on our on my Twitter, f- Twitter feed after the show. I'm concerned about energy drinks being linked to cardiac arrhythmias, cardiac arrest, particularly in young athletes. So they estimate that, you know, 30 to 40% of adolescents will drink energy drinks on a regular on a regular basis. And these drinks have, you know, they have high content, high content of, of caffeine, um, higher than you get in a, in a lot of cases than you get from a cup of coffee. So a cup of coffee that's strong would be maybe 100 milligrams of caffeine. These energy drinks could be 200 to 250 milligrams. They also have extra stuff in them that's designed to give you energy, which you know, could potentially be harmful as well. So they have something called garin, which is, or garin, I'm maybe not saying that correctly, it's from a, the grana plant that comes out of Brazil. It basically is caffeine in a, you know, it's a slightly different form that when you, when you ingest it, it's released and you get more caffeine than the caffeine that's already been added. And then they also have um, 
derivatives of ginseng, uh, which energize you, and derivatives of taurine, which again designed to give you more energy. And 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 they all these things together. Uh, what is the safety? They haven't been well studied. And so, you know, th- th- there have been reports, and this article outlines them, of energy drink consumption in younger younger, younger children uh, being the only conceivable explanation for children that die suddenly. So the idea is that these drinks stimulate our heart, and in rare cases they can provoke a rhythm disturbance of the heart, and that makes people die. Also, other types of arrhythmias that aren't fatal, but they're unusual in children, so something like atrial fibrillation, and they again seem to be linked to use of energy drinks uh, in children. So this is, the, I guess, a concern uh, amongst educators and among, amongst coaches and amongst the medical community uh, about these drinks. This is a big concern because, you know, one time I had a patient who knew that water was good, so she thought if you bought it, it was better, so she bought yeah. Perrier water, and of course it had a negative impact on her bladder health. And so there's probably a lot of parents out there that think, you know, what this is going to give my kid the leg up if I buy him an energy drink, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially if he had a good night's sleep, and, and he, or worse, if he hasn't. Um, and so, you know, this is where education is so important. Important. The other thing that kids are doing with these drinks is they are, on Friday nights, they are mixing these energy drinks with alcohol. And so they're not only doing that Friday night, they may go to the soccer pitch or the hockey or the ice rink the next morning. Um, and also to get them moving again, uh, you know, have another energy drink. And so are we seeing, uh, are these kids like, like that are getting AFib, for example, which is typically a, a cardiac arrhythmia for older, typically seen mm-hmm. in older exactly. people, that results in fatigue and increases the risk of stroke. Is this something that is staying with the children or is this something that once they take back, you know, remove the energy drinks, it is resolved? So we don't know for sure. The hope is that most of these children are healthy uh, and that once you take away the extra energy drink that um, this problem won't persist. Uh, It seems to be, though, a particular problem, Maureen, in children who already have some other type of heart disease. So whether it's a structural heart disease, like a little hole in their heart that they may not know they had or if they had heart surgery when they were younger. And then there's the odd person, too, that will have a a rhythm disorder, so their, their heart looks normal when we image it, but there's something electrical that's different compared to other people, and there's uh, a number of different ways this can happen. And so in those uh, children, the risk of having something happen is uh, a fair bit higher, and then the risk of you know further problems later in life is higher, even if, the, if, even if they stop drinking the energy drinks. So uh, go ahead. And I was just going to say, what was your, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but um, what's your recommendation for sports and energy drinks in kids? So I think the safest thing is not for, for, for adolescents, so children under 18 and younger, or young adults 18 and younger, uh, not to use these drinks at all. Uh, other uh, specialists in the field think that probably one drink is okay. So one can, 250 mils of an energy drink, one of them is, is safe for most uh, adolescents who are otherwise healthy. Um, the, the recommended caffeine intake for adolescents is 100 milligrams or less per day. So that's usually one cup of coffee or one energy drink, and some energy drinks have more. So 100 milligrams of caffeine or less, or one can of an energy drink um, is what some people say. Uh, I would probably suggest not not consuming them at all. And then particularly um, important is to not use them for sports performance. There's so much pressure that we place on our children, both academically and, you know, in athletics. Uh, and, and for sports, you're going to raise your heart rate anyways, and you're going to, you know, people that have any underlying heart problems, they can sometimes be more likely to emerge with sports. So it's everybody recommends that uh, adolescents and adults too, for that matter, not use these energy drinks either for pregame hydration or for, you know, fluid replenishment at halftime or during the game. 
Excellent advice. I really appreciate it, Dr. Weisler. Thank you so much. And just tell me a quick bit about uh, you do some work for the sports teams around uh, British Columbia, where you go out and do uh, EKGs for students, yeah, for student that's athletes. Right. Um, yeah, we, we do. Uh, we work both for the professional teams here in BC, and then uh, my my colleagues and I also are bringing screening to uh, both younger athletes at high schools and uh, and colleges, and then uh, older athletes as well. We've done some of the some of the local country clubs, and we're moving that. So we have a screening program where we do ECGs, and I'll listen to their heart to your heart, and then we have we often have a dietitian with us to provide quick dietary advice for people that are interested. We also have a nurse practitioner that works with us that does CPR instruction. So we're kind of a traveling team that uh, that goes around and and uh, provides the service. And fantastic, and uh, it's it's a great service that you're providing to communities here in Western Canada. Much appreciated. Much appreciate your time as well. Thank you so much. Always sage advice. And uh, we'll get you back on the program talking about the next thing that's in the media. Thanks very much, Maureen. <laughs> How to make our lives healthier. That's jo- Dr. John Weisler. He is uh, the owner at the North Shore Heart Function Clinic over there in North Vancouver. Um, you know what? Physicians are amazing. I work with so many of them. Many of them refer their patients to see me. I've worked with physicians for a number of years. And I was struck by an article that said, physician, heal thyself is terrible advice. We need to look after each other. And this was authored by uh, uh, Dr. Trina Larson-Souls of Doctors of BC. She's the president of Doctors of BC. And uh, I work with a number, as I said, a number of physicians, and I have tremendous respect for them. And one in particular who I have tremendous respect for. And, and you know what? Although I know nobody is perfect, I thought this particular person was. And, and this person, and I just felt that this person went through life unscathed, unflawed, um, that managed every situation and just was walking on a golden path. And this person had the uh, generosity to share with me a story about their career and at a time in their career, career when things were looking dark and bleak. Um, physicians have a tendency to be um, perfectionistic, um, obsessive, compulsive, dare I say, or, or obsessive anyway. Um, they're in- highly intelligent. Uh, they are driven. They are self-reliant. They are independent. They are learners, lifelong learners. They have extreme pride. Um, and often their sense of self may be defined by the work that they do, but they have a tremendous amount of responsibility. And my colleague and friend shared with me a story when this particular person needed to go for help themselves and and to because they felt that the experiences that they had had in medicine and particularly difficult time brought some thoughts to their head that were uh, bordering on dangerous. Uh, if anybody had any shame around mental illness or mental health, um, this the sharing of this story by my colleague only served to it for me to admire this person more and have a greater sense of respect for this person. And uh, also sharing this story. Uh, gave some insight and uh, will allow me to even share 
this story with you, that if you are suffering like this, whether you are a physician or not, uh, help is, there is help for you, and it's important to seek help. And the, there's a, an issue around physician suicide that has been studied since 1967. And one study in the U.S. demonstrated a woman's, a female physician's suicide rate was four times higher than that of the general female population. And in the U.S., estimates are that 300 to 400 physicians die by suicide annually. Canadian numbers are less well-studied, but we know from the 2007-2008 Canadian Physician Health Survey that up to a quarter of physicians in this country experience at least a two-week bout of depression. This is a systemic public health problem. This is something that um, uh, we need to recognize in physicians as well as the public. And that's why just one more reason we need to destigmatize mental illness and put mental health at the top of the order. The working relationships that physicians have uh, involve involve a, a giving, if you will, a serving. There are a number of human emotions that um, that encompass being a physician, and it's important that we acknowledge that physicians are subject to some of the very similar medical conditions as everyone else in the population, and you know. uh, physicians get close to patients, especially if they've seen them over 25, 30 years. Uh, Patients die. It's it's heartbreaking when, when patients die. It's heartbreaking when somebody's operated on somebody and feels that, oh, did I need to do that operation? They died eight weeks afterward or or whatever. Many conflicting um, issues and and emotions. So there are um, these physicians, heal thyself is not necessarily the best advice. We need to heal each other. You've been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Visit my website, backtothebedroom.ca. Follow me on Twitter, at back, the number two, the bedroom. Today is National Poets Day. Read a poet to, poem to your lover. I'm Maureen McGrath. You've been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.